Paranormal Tales from the Tower, Episode 5, Ghosts of Prague. The first thing that strikes you as you walk the cobblestone streets of Prague is that you are definitely in an ancient place. It isn't so much the streets themselves or the buildings, which are impressive in their age and beauty, but rather in the worn stones of the steps that you take wherever you go and the natural footpaths that you take without thought. Prague is a small city by modern standards, filled with steeples and spires and narrow winding streets. It bustles with walkers, tourists, workers, Americans, Europeans on holiday, visiting the medieval town that somehow survived and survives. The city has been the capital of an empire, has seen the rise of Christianity, the power of the Catholic Church, the strength of the world's oldest continuous synagogue, the abuse and destruction of Nazism, the futility and neglect of communism, and finally, recently, the return to Czech freedom. Unlike other places that were so important in so many movements, Prague managed to survive major destruction, and because of this it remains intact, growing and changing, and yet still the original city. No phoenix forced to be reborn from flame. Prague did not require destruction to find new life. There's a continuity to places like Prague, a continuity that regimes cannot break, that dictators cannot destroy. It's more than the stones and the buildings, but they are a part of it. You walk these streets and you see the worn grooves of generations, centuries, millennia, that walked them before you. You're a drop in the river of time that wears that groove. Prague looks haunted. It looks like the scene your mind builds when you think about haunted towns, ancient with churches and soft lights that breathe long and twisting shadows around cathedral spires. There are corners and alleys to play with the sounds of those fellow travelers who wander the lanes with you, but just out of sight. Is that laughter coming from a tavern behind the church, or from the churchyard itself, and from eternity? It's hard to tell on cool yet balmy evenings when the moon is hanging low in the sky and it's full of promise and mischief, when the light seems to get caught in the pregnant air and it settles around objects and people, making the world glow. Prague's history is complicated, even if its people take it in stride. They shrug off the past like so much dust on a coach shoulder, but it's still there. Even in the shrug, there is the church, the empire, the Nazis, the communists, the tourists, all there as if to warn you that today is just tomorrow's debris. Having seen it all, little phases them. Still, the city is a wonderful piece of old world, whatever that might mean. The city is the city, always the city, whatever else might come and go. The eyes of the older residents seem to imply that it will all go, as it has always gone, and still the city will remain. About thirty minutes outside of Prague, one finds oneself well and truly in the countryside. The driving lanes narrow and lose whatever asphalt they'd had. The lights of the city, the fortresses, the cathedrals, all dry up, and you are in a thick, 
inky darkness and stillness that wraps around you like a cocoon, filling all the space between you and the night. You swim in it. You almost drown. On such nights and such places, those thoughts of science and proof and logic and reasonableness get sanded off of you, and in their place is the definitive faith in the continuity of the human spirit, the immortality of suffering, the eternity of loss. And of course the land is haunted. Of course the ghosts approach. After all, you ask them to do that. You walked into the canopy of 300-year-old trees to a place that you knew others steered clear of because you wanted to know what you suddenly know. Along the road just outside the city, there's a large hospital complex. It's still in operation. It was built originally in the early part of the 20th century when lunatic asylums were popping up all over the world. The treatment of mental and emotional ailments had generally been a private affair before this time, with criminal cases being the exception. Those hospitals that did exist were rarely more than holding cells of chaos and misery, as medical science struggled to understand the growing demand for treatments of diseases of the mind, and some say the soul. Melancholia, hysteria, manic episodes were treated alongside schizophrenia and psychopathy. They did not know what they did not know. These hospitals certainly started with the intention of providing help and respite, but quickly they were swamped, and the care suffered greatly until they no longer resembled houses of care, and instead became horror houses, where the unfortunates of society were sent to be forgotten, and unfortunately, sometimes, abused. The word asylum is defined as an inviolable place of refuge and protection, a sanctuary. And these places began as such. They were refuge for the lost and for the ill, for those who no longer were safe within their own minds. Yet time and isolation have a way of inviting in corruption. And without constant vigilance, even the most pure of vessel will crack when faced with wave upon wave of, why not? Constant vigilance is impossible. Human nature has within it flaws and imperfections, Cruelty and carelessness among them. Bohanichi Asylum is about 40 minutes outside of Prague proper. It's now a modern facility, yet it's still called a lunatic asylum. Today they treat emotional and mental illnesses and do not treat hysteria and homosexuality. The campus is large and attractive, and the houses that line the streets seem cozy and welcoming. And yet, I wonder. The stories of abuse are common medical experimentations, neglect, assault. Some who came here in the past merely disagreed with the moral structures of their time or the political climate or their place in the society offended others. For some who lived here, life did get better, and perhaps they left and led happy lives. For many years, the asylum was a city unto itself, and as such it maintained its own services, churches, kitchen, factories, and of course, of course its own cemetery. But for those who died here, however, whether through age, illness, or self-violence, they all went to that one place. Off the campus, another ten minutes by car, down a winding lane far beyond the farms and houses in a place where modern streetlights have not yet reached, is the Bohanichi burial ground. 
Just before you enter, you come upon a small plot of land, completely overrun with thick and beautiful vegetation, and surrounded by a chain-link fence. Yet there was a carefully cleared path that one could meander through. In the dark, with literally only a sliver of moon to light the way, we approached the fence and we looked through. Although overgrown, one had a sense that the place was cared for, even loved, and yet, at that late hour, in the impossible darkness, it seemed unfathomable that people would ever be there. The place felt so silent, so lone, so tucked away, like the set of a movie locked up until needed. Behind that chain-link fence were small stones, some ornate, some handmade, and they were for the beloved companions of the people of the area. It was a pet cemetery. Weird in its own right, but there's nothing truly unnerving about the spirit of Fluffy or Rolf wandering the countryside. What axe could they have to grind, after all? What could keep a cat or a turtle or even man's best friend tied to this mortal coil? And even if it was so, it seemed to beggar belief that they would stay here if they did walk the earth. Weird, so, but strangely charming and not at all off-putting. But we were not at our final destination yet, and so we trudged another half-mile up the dirt path to a large, chained gate. Now this was no chain-link fence, hastily put up to keep out critters. No, this was substantial. The ornate gate was twenty feet high, with pale brick columns and then ivy-covered walls on either side. A chain looped through the gate with a massive, almost theatrical lock. And here we had arrived. Now, I've spent many, many, many nights in places of haunted repute. Those of you who listen to this podcast know that I'm more than comfortable in such situations, and also that I crave the dark and solitude of lost and rambling roads at night. Yet as we stepped into the cemetery, I did feel something. I can't quite describe it. It was no darker on one side of the gate than the other, no colder, no quieter. And yet, if I'm honest, it was all of those things. We walked into the cemetery and stood in a circle before we branched off on our own. There were eight people in the group, and all one could hear was the footsteps and shuffling of each as we found a spot at a crossing of paths within the site. We all agreed to shut down our lights and to just be quiet. It was truly unnerving. I felt beside me a movement, and I felt someone step to my left, leaning in, as if listening intently to what the darkness was allowing us to hear. There was very little sound. No little night creatures scuttled around, no bat wings flapped, no wind, and the slim moonlight was not yet breaking through the tight canopy of ancient trees that covered us. When I say that I felt this, I mean I truly believed that someone, a living person, had creeped closer to me, leaned in, and was straining to hear something. It felt like a strange overstepping of boundaries, as if someone was moving into my personal space, and I was unsure who in the group would have done it. I put my hand out to make them aware that I was close, because the darkness was so total that I thought perhaps they didn't see me. Perhaps that they were unaware that they were about to bump into me. And as I reached out, my hand met with no resistance. 
there was no one there. And yet all of my senses, which I have come to rely on in this life, called that a lie. There was even the faintest of shapes darker than the darkness that my eyes, still acclimating to the night, had discerned. But there was no one there. There was no body there. And for all of my experience, I found it unnerving. We walked silently through the site, the graves overgrown, vandalized, the stones stolen. The cemetery was the final resting place to patients of the asylum, but also to others from the area. There were soldiers from World War I, victims of different outbreaks of diseases, and even a suspected murderer, and likely several victims of violence. As we moved through the grounds, we came upon the remains of a chapel. The walls still stood, but no roof covered it, and just one slight door attempted to keep us out. It had been used in the 1980s in the film Amadeus as the pauper's grave that Mozart's body had been dumped in. It was likely, despite what the film showed, that Mozart would be buried in a common grave, not a communal grave. A common grave is one that was owned by a regular citizen, and it was singular, but it was able to be reused in ten years should the government require it. Aristocratic graves were not subject to reuse, and a communal grave would have been a grave that many bodies were placed in. Still, as we stood by the opening in the ground, it was obvious that communal burials did happen here. And there's something inherently sad about this, something that tugs at our sense of propriety and fairness and even responsibility, as if the indignities that one felt of social status pass with us into the next life, and perhaps they do. Mass graves are offensive to our sense of uniqueness and fair play. Each of us, modern thought has us believe, is unique and valuable. And a mass grave where our uniqueness is unpreserved or acknowledged offends that notion. It's worse when we consider the time of the burial and find that the people of that time would have felt the sting of it. But regardless, there's something about it that bugs us. These nameless people forgotten by time, erased, perhaps a fear of our own inevitable loss to time. On top of this, we knew that many of the people had been forgotten in life as well. Even those cared for and loved and treated kindly in the asylum ended up here, buried beneath the covetous ivy, the relentless ivy. Once inside the rusted gates, the ground was utterly covered by this ivy, the slices of blue moonlight shot sharply through the canopy, highlighting this tree, that broken cross, this pathway, and leaving others in shadow, as if by design. I cannot overstate the beautiful hush that one was in. A pause. A held breath. A simple hush awaiting something. After walking past one intact grave, that of Maria Tula, who a local caretaker seems to have developed a crush on, or, as the guide told us, quote, he says she speaks to him, we came to a wide expanse of ivy, surrounded by tall, even ancient trees, and just beyond them, the wall. In the center was a small clearing. The ground was littered with burnt-out candles. There was no stone marking the grave, but there was an indent in the ground, as if the soil had only recently settled. This was impossible, as the cemetery had not been used in more than 50 years. Kids, no doubt, and other pursuers of arcane knowledge like myself. 
The ivy was worn in four paths leading to the spot, worn away. A beam of light fell upon the area, and we all stepped closer, listening to the story of the inhabitant of the grave. He was thought to be a murderer. But that was not correct, according to our guide. He was, in fact, a detective who had not solved a horrific series of murders in the area. So doggedly did he pursue the killer that the fact that the killer remained at large became a reason to suspect this man. How could someone who worked so hard and tirelessly not succeed? Unless, of course, he did not want to succeed. And that became his legacy. After he died and was buried in the graveyard, folklore took his truth and bent it and sculpted it, and, and another tale entirely became his truth. And his grave became the final resting place of a diabolical murderer, and not a dogged and determined detective. There were murmurs of, that's not right, and oh man, as the story was relayed. But how much of it was true? Who really knows? Still, the grave was visited over and over by people who believed the tale, who berated the name of this man, who accused and condemned. The woman who was leading us kneeled down as she told the story, and she apologized, saying that she had believed it too. She had told the tale, had spread the lie. She lit a candle and she asked for forgiveness. But she also asked for a sign. And with her, beside the candle, she had one of the bells and whistles of the paranormal investigator, an EMF detector. It's used to measure the electromagnetic field of a given area. Fluctuations register on it, and lights light up, and beeps are made. And in the midst of a cemetery 40 minutes outside of Prague, surrounded by landscape unblemished by the signs of modern convenience, in other words, no electrical wires overhead, no telephone wires, no cell coverage. Many of us had commented before shutting down our phones. A single beep and a single flash of light at just the right moment. I'm not trusting enough to think that it's impossible that someone intentionally made the light light and the beep beep. And yet, I'm not sure how they would have done it with such precision I'm familiar with this equipment, but really I just don't think that they did. There was something in the moment, some emotional weight, some thickness to the air that we all felt. Whether that came from the story or from our willingness and desire to feel something, or from something external to us, I, I can't say, I don't know. I do know that when it had gone, we felt its absence as strongly as we had felt its presence. Did something happen in the cemetery? Perhaps. It certainly felt as if something happened. As we stood by the grave of someone accused of something terrible, there did seem to be a strange and sudden movement that came closer to us. Yet it did not feel malevolent. It did not feel threatening. Instead, it felt tired, but curious. Tired, perhaps, of waiting to be heard or understood curious to see if we would be the ones to understand. We had our equipment, it beeped and it lit up, and all those things that being 40 miles outside of the city with no electricity remotely close by should have stopped it from doing, and yet it wasn't the beeps that lingered with me. It was the light of the moon. 
the isolation of the place, the quiet, unbroken, and then ever so slightly broken by the lightest of footsteps, the windless night but the swaying trees, and the sense of someone leaning over my shoulder to see, to hear, to understand. Those four hours of my trip to Prague occupy a lot of my memory of the place. The quiet, the walls, the people, the ivy, the dead, of course the stories. Was there something more compelling about the location because the graves held the bad, the broken, the murdered? At some point the stories didn't matter because the stories just set the table, but they didn't feed us. There was something else too. Something more transient and ephemeral, but very real. Something that says to me that in that place, on that night, we did not walk alone among those graves. Whether the stories brought life to a dark night, or our belief in the possibility gave breath to something, I don't know. But it made me think, as we wander through modern lights and down darkened paths, as we draw a bath or order a glass of wine, as we slip through our lives on paths worn by the time and the footsteps of others, perhaps we never walk them alone. Perhaps all that truly divides this world from the next is a moment spent seeking. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Tales on the Tower. This is episode 5, Ghosts of Prague. You can visit us online at www.paranormalbooksnj.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. If there's something that you'd like me to cover, please feel free to send me an email or a Facebook message. And thanks again for listening.